I'm turning once again this morning to Hebrews chapter number 4. Hebrews chapter number 4. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 11 through 13. Hebrews chapter 4, looking at verses 11 through 13. Uh, Last week, uh, we dealt uh, primarily with uh, the examining of Christ's rest. And today, we're going to deal with the subject of entering into the rest of Christ or entering into Christ's rest. Uh, We learned last week that the end that is being proposed by the writer of Hebrews is not only a spiritual rest, but also an eternal rest. There is a rest that is found in Christ and His grace on earth, and there is also an eternal, uh, everlasting rest that we will find with Christ in heaven. In other words, if we are already in Christ, we have entered into a sort of rest here because we are with Christ even though He is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Uh, We learned in those first 10 verses last week that uh, we are to to labor to enter into that rest. We're going to see in verse number 11 again. And that rest when it finally comes, that eternal rest that we are longing for, that eternal glorification that we desire so greatly will certainly uh, become real and it will be more than worth it all and worth all that we've endured here. To enter into this Christ, we also need to understand what the Word of God declares. In verse 11 of Hebrews 4, it says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the divine asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let us labor, therefore, to enter. Of course, we understand that he is not teaching us that it is our works that will get us into this rest, but that it should be the diligent searching of our heart to make sure that we do not fall short of that rest. Remember the example that the writer of Hebrews has given us is the example of those who fell in the wilderness who came short. They came short of entering into that rest because of one single reason, and it was unbelief. In those first 10 verses, we understand and see that those who came short of that rest because of unbelief were there for our example, uh, that we don't fall short, that we do not come short of the rest. The remainder of the chapter, beginning here in verse number 11, down through the end of the chapter in verse 16, deals with these arguments and the motives in which we approach God. To enter into Christ, we must approach God in His way. We cannot approach God on our own merits. We cannot approach God on our own works. Our works would not allow us to approach God in a single instance. If our works alone could give us access to God, then we would have some sort of works-based salvation and works-based access, which we cannot have. But we do understand that as the writer here 
is teaching us that this rest is found in Christ. It is the rest of God. Uh, We were admonished last week against these pictures of unbelief, and we learned that most of the Israelites who left Egypt with Moses did not enter into that earthly rest of Canaan. Uh, They came short because they did not believe God. They didn't trust God. They found themselves wandering in the wilderness because they refused to trust His promises. They refused to trust His power. And probably most importantly, they forgot about His sovereignty and His providential dealings in all things. Paul gave us the example even in 1 Corinthians, which we'll look at again this morning in 1 Corinthians 10, about how that ought to be an example to us and how evil unbelief really is. It is unbelief that shuts the doors of heaven. It's unbelief that will shut the door to entering into the rest of Christ. So we see here in this latter part of the chapter, we see that repeated exhortation to be sure that we do not fall short, that we labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. That is, friends, a serious admonition and a serious exhortation. Let us labor. The end is this spiritual rest. The end is this eternal rest. But the way is only found through Christ. The way is only found through diligent seeking after Christ. This unbelief that they fell short of was not because they were not informed. The unbelief was not because they did not know or they were not told. They refused to enter in because they did not believe God. We understand that labor, and labor is often taken to mean something that we do. But notice what he says, let us labor therefore to enter. When we see the word us, of course, he is speaking of those who are already in that rest who are entering into it and there is this idea of encouraging and edifying one another to this principle Uh, we ought to be entering into this rest together and we ought to be looking at one another as a friendship in this rest we ought to be encouraging and calling others to belief calling others to stand firm and to diligently seek after the things of god folks i would say Uh, As a little bit of a side note here, uh, now is not the time to be stationary and sitting still. I know we often get the reputation in these reform circles as, yes, you are the people who are just stone cold seated. You don't move. You don't get excited at services. You You don't amen. You don't raise your hands. You're just stone cold. That's not what he has in mind here. But we ought to be laboring to enter in. This idea that we are to be seated seated still and not moving. That's not what he has in mind. There is this important that we have work to do. We have things that we ought to be actively engaged in. We ought to be calling one another to active, diligent service of our Lord. And as we see the day approaching, not just the Sunday when we gather together or Wednesday when we gather together, but as we see the day approaching, when we actually enter into that eternal rest, we ought to be edifying and encouraging one another to be diligently seeking after those great truths. 
These are powerful motives the writer of Hebrews is giving us. We've been giving, given that awful example of those who fell. He says, don't be that person who fell because of unbelief. Folks, I don't know how many people you have witnessed who have fallen, either, either fallen what appeared to be away from God, who have slipped away. Oftentimes they slipped, they slipped away in the night and you didn't even notice they had slipped away. Let it not be said about us that somebody within even our congregation slipped away unnoticed. That there's a reality that we should not want any other Christian brother, sister to fall away. To see someone fall away. And we didn't warn them. We didn't edify them. We didn't do anything to stop them. It ought to be convicting to us. To say, why was I so unaware that a brother or sister in Christ could so easily have fallen away? I don't know what all the people of Israel thought. I wasn't there. You weren't there. I don't know what conversations they were having when the command came to go into the promised land. But I would imagine that there were some people discussing some things of, can we really believe God? Can we really trust God? But I want you to think about this. They had just seen God do one of the greatest miracles by parting that sea, making the water stand up on end, putting dry ground through the middle of that sea. There really was nothing that God could not do. But yet most never entered in to the promised land because of unbelief. We were talking Wednesday evening about how people say, if I could just see a miracle today, if I could just see Jesus perform a miracle, I would believe. And we, we looked at the uh, story of Jesus casting out the demons and sending them into the herd of swine. And the only word Jesus used to cast them out was the word go. That's all he said. And those demons or legion of demons came out of those two possessed men, went into that herd of swine, and went running over the cliff to their death and their destruction. And I made mention of the fact that you would have believed at that point that everybody saw this miracle take place, that everybody would have said, now we would believe, but the response of the people was this, we want you to depart from our coast and don't ever come back again. Because the reality is, is their livelihood had gone over that cliff in that swine. That was, that was the, the income of many of those people. And they said, we would prefer our income now than anything that Christ has to offer me. Don't, be, don't fall into the trap of saying, if I could just see Jesus perform a miracle now, I would certainly believe. You have all that you need to believe in Christ Jesus right now, to repent of your sins and to believe on Christ. There is nothing further needed. Man wants Christ his own way. And yet, it ought to make us miserable to consider that we would, without a simple acknowledgement of another brother or sister or Christ, or even someone who said they were a brother or sister or Christ, so easily to slip away and to fall in the wilderness like so many of the Israelites did. I can't imagine. Remember, the Bible described that their carcasses fell, a very descriptive terminology to show the seriousness of this. It is this dreadful example that the writer of Hebrews has in mind when he now 
after this principle of do not fall in the same example of unbelief, that he gives this most familiar verse. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the divine asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What does the writer of Hebrews mean by this? Well, he teaches us not only about the activity of God's word, but he declares that Christ himself is the word of God. We certainly understand that we have the word of God to strengthen us. We have the word of God to strengthen not only our faith, but it calls us to to diligently seek him. It's calling us to obtain this rest. But then the writer says this, but I want you to remember, the word of God is quick. The word of God is quick. The Word of God, we can understand really in two essential uh, principles here. It is either the essential written Word, or it is the Word, which Jesus himself is declared in John 1.1, in the beginning was God, and in the beginning was with God, which was a declaration of Jesus Christ being the Word. Now again, I realize that this is... Uh, This particular thought, the Word of God, has taken on two different meanings throughout history, and there have been uh, pastors and commentators and theologians on both sides. Some will make the clear declaration that this only means the Scriptures. There are others that say, no, this only means Christ. And I would say that the position means it is a combination of both. It is the Word of God that declares Jesus Christ is the Word. Both of those things can coexist. It is indeed fact that what the Word of God declares about Jesus is in fact true. The Word of God declares who Jesus is. Every scripture declares who Christ is. It is the Word of God. It is quick. It is living is what that means. You'll find people such as John Owen and John Gill, others, who say it is Christ. That's the position that they take. And you'll find others such as John Calvin and others that declare it is the Scriptures. But the writer is calling it the Word of God. I would submit to you, why can't it be both? Christ and the Scriptures go together. The Scriptures declare who Christ is. Christ reveals the Father. They can't be separated. Christ is the truth. Christ is the Gospel. And you realize today it's only because Christ is alive that the Word of God is alive and effectual. If Christ is not living, then the Word of God is dead. It isn't quick. The Bible is a living book. It's not like a book you pull off at a bookstore, and it's not like a book you pull off the shelf at the library. It is a living book. We, of course, reference John chapter 1. I'll quickly reference that again. John 1, beginning there in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. A clear reference to Christ Down in verse 14 of that first chapter, it says, And the Word was made flesh 
That's a reference to Christ and dwelt among us. That's the incarnate word. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Even the scriptures declare that the word was Christ. The word was with Christ and the word is Christ. Over in John chapter number 5, verse 39, we see another declaration being made here. Search the, this is the Lord Jesus' own words. He says, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Jesus himself said, if you search the scriptures, you will see they testify of me. What's very peculiar about that is when Jesus was speaking those words, he was speaking primarily about the Old Testament scriptures. Because he sure wasn't telling them to open to the book of John, and I want to share with you, he was speaking those at that moment. He was pointing to the Old Testament. He said, if you look at the Old Testament, it speaks of me. So we understand here that the word of God speaks of Christ. Now the use of this word quick has some very deep meanings to it. It means it is living, it is active. What is it active doing? What is it living to do? The Word of God is meant to really arrest your conscience, first of all. It's meant to convict you. It, it's meant to cut to the heart. Now that's quite a different uh, approach than the modern Christian devotional purposes of Scripture, where they say the purpose of Scripture is just to give you a comforting thought for the day. The intention of the Word of God was originally and is continuing to arrest the conscience and to cut to the very heart. What is it cutting after? What is it looking for? What is it examining? Listen, I would submit to you that if you are in Christ and you are in the Scriptures, you will find that even when the Bible cuts you to the very heart, when it seizes and arrests your conscience, you will still find comfort in that because the same word that, that strikes you, the same word that arrests your conscience, is the same word that comforts you. Because we begin to understand, I know what I am because the Word of God tells me I'm this depraved sinner, but I find comfort that there is a remedy, there is a way to bind up the wounds of my sin, and that is found in Jesus Christ. Do not run away from the conviction of the Word of God through the Spirit. I know people that read their scriptures and say, I don't want to be convicted. If you're in Christ, you want to be convicted. You want to be cut to the heart because you realize you need to be reminded of what you are and who He is. No book on the library shelf will do that to you. Now, you might have an emotional reaction to it, but it will not cut you to the heart in the sense of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Because he means something much deeper much deeper than just this feeling. Notice the word quick, alive. It is cutting. It comforts. That's why you can go to a college, a secular college campus, and sadly, some Christian college campuses, and they find the Word of God as nothing more than a dead book. 
If you have a young person who's in secular college who's taking a Bible course, I can assure you of one thing. They're not studying that as a living book. They're studying that as a dead, dried up old book that you can't trust and that you ought to put it under the light of your own conscience and your own truth and say, what's true for me doesn't necessarily have to match up what the Bible says. It's an amazing thing how many parents hear their child say, I'm taking a Bible class in college and their Bible class is trying to pull apart and cut to pieces the Word of God. This attack on Jesus Christ in our society today is not, uh, it's not by chance. There is an intent to cut Christ out of everything. And in many ways, they, society thinks it's succeeding. See, it's an amazing thing that a book that is made up of pages and covers can be a living book. But do you realize the living book means that it has a living identity behind it? It has a living person behind it. That's why I said I don't, I'm not the originator of this, but you could chop up, cut up every single copy of the Word of God throughout this planet, and you still would not take away Jesus Christ, and you still would not kill God. Because the letter of the Word of God is written in the heart of those who are His. And you realize when something is living, it is not only quick, but it's also quickening, which means it makes alive. It's a living word. Do you realize how many people have died since the word of God was penned? Do you realize how many saints have died and gone into glory with Christ and how many sinners have died and gone into everlasting punishment in a place called hell? Do you realize the numbers, the staggering numbers that I'm telling you this morning? You realize we're talking about millions, maybe billions. We're talking about people who have died because there's one event that all of us are facing and it's death. And that ultimate question will be, what did you think of Christ? What did you do with Christ? It will not ask you, did you have a copy of the Bible on your shelf? Did you go to church? What did you believe about Christ? Because it is Christ that this rest is found. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 through 25 says, All flesh is grass, and all the glory thereof as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. Christ, as the word, endures forever. Zechariah 1, verses 5 and 6. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? It's a, it's a reasonable question. Zechariah wants to know, where are your earthly fathers? Where are they? The answer is, they died. And he goes on and he says, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Where are your prophets? But my words which I commanded the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? You see, the fathers died, but the word never dies. Christ went to that cross voluntarily. He went to that cross willingly. And he did, in fact, die. 
We read about the resurrection this morning. Don't, don't let these false gospel doctrine people try to teach you that Christ didn't really die, that he went into just some kind of deep coma. He actually died. That was the only acceptable means in which God the Father would accept him. He had to die. But then we read Mark 16 and we see the glorious resurrection of Christ. He is risen. He's not here. That's of great comfort that the living word is living. And that you and I together, corporately, in worship, read the Word of God together. Scripture reading. Simply reading the Word of God. It's quick. It's living. It cuts to the heart. Back in our text, not only does he say that it's quick, but notice the other word that he uses, and powerful. Man believes he has power. Let me say that again. Man believes he has power. Man believes he has control. People think, I am in control of my own destiny. I am the commander of my fate. I control this ship. I determine the when, I determine the how, and I certainly will determine the why, and nobody will tell me how to do that. That's man's depraved nature on clear display. Don't tell me. You see, man has a false sense of power. But what the writer here has in mind with regard to the living word, the essential Christ or the scriptures, when God turns the Word of God loose by His Spirit, you know what the Word of God does? It convicts and it convinces in an effectual way. It has power. Have you ever noticed kings come and kings go? Rulers come and rulers go? Nations rule and then they get pulled down? Who's doing all the rising up and who's doing all the pulling down? God's doing all of that. If a nation is under the leadership of a wicked ruler, is it because the will, the will of the people outdid the will of God? No, the will of God is always done. Do not believe the lie that somehow we're controlling God's will. If we live in a nation under wicked rule, don't blame the people. This is an act of God. Folks, we'd be better well spent wasting our, spending our time, not wasting our time trying to figure out how to fix society and realizing who is the author of society and who is the ruler. Who actually has power? We were never called to, to, to transform society. We were called to preach the gospel. Upon Jesus' resurrection, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. He doesn't say go into all the world and set up Christian kingdoms. He doesn't say go into all the world and set up Christian politics. He says, I want you to go into the world and preach the gospel. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You want to see a change in a nation, if that's what you truly want to see, it's not going to be through politics. It's going to be through Jesus Christ and His gospel. Say, What's, where's the power? The power is, is God's Word always accomplishes what it sets out to do. You know, every time a preacher stands up in a pulpit or stands up anywhere and proclaims the Word of God, he can have this assurance. God's Word will do what it was intended to do. And if it gets no results outwardly, that preacher has not failed. Because the Word of God doesn't fail. 
But I will tell you this, if you're seated anywhere near where the Word of God is actually being preached and proclaimed, it will affect you. People say often, I've been, I've been going to church for 15 years and the, word has never, the messages have never spoken to me. Then you're denying the power of God which says His Word is quick and powerful. Not powerful when we want it to be, but powerful that it always accomplishes that what it sets out to do and it never returns void. On a personal note, I always used to worry so much about how a message came across to the people. And I would judge results by altars. I would judge results by how many people came forward. I would judge results by what I could actually see. And then I realized this has never been about the preacher. It's always been about the Word of God is quick and powerful and is sharper than a two-edged sword. I don't have to worry about a single result. Why? Because it's a, it's a living book. It's a living book that tells us about the living Christ. Every other religion in the world is the service of a dead ruler or what they call a god and he's dead or she's dead or it's dead. There are people who worship trees. There are people who worship mountains. There are people that worship dirt and they think they got it right. You and I worship a living Christ. A living God who is told to us in a living book that every time you read a single chapter, a single verse, it accomplishes what God intended for it to accomplish. I hope you never pick your Bible up again and just read it and just say, I just want a quick thought for today. I hope you read it saying this book is quick and powerful. And my prayer for you is that it will cut you to the heart every time you read it. Even when you read the Begats. Even when you read the Chronicles and you read the things that you think, what does this have to do with my life? The Word of God is quick and powerful. We understand that it's so powerful that Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 10. You want to see a verse taken out of context? So often, here's one of them. People like to put this out of the context that sounds good to them. But look at 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 through 5, and look what Paul was talking about what the Word of God actually does. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Now remember, Paul often, people questioned his apostleship, right? So Paul was often berated, saying, you know, who gave you the authority? Um, to stand in front of us. That's why Paul always began many of his letters by saying, a servant of Jesus Christ. He was identifying, I'm not coming to my own power. I'm not coming to my own strength. I'm coming in the power and the authority of God. Look what he, look what he says in verse 3. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. To, pulling, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The, the Word is so powerful, it pulls down strongholds. It casts down people's imaginations. 
It casts down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So when we get all bent out of shape, when somebody rises up and stands itself against God, and we get all nervous and say, oh no, do you think God has this? What's God going to do? I'm getting nervous. I'm getting full of despair. I'm getting full of discouragement. Would you understand that there is nothing or nobody that can pull down God? No one. No thing. It's the opposite. He cast them down. His Word. People have used this for their their moment to go out and conquer the world. I'm going to cast down my strongholds in my life. It's not what Paul was talking about. Paul wasn't talking about slaying the giants in his life. The Christian bookstore mentality. All you need is your five smooth stones and you can go out and slay your giants. You've all heard it. You're not David. You're not Jeremiah and the plans he has for you. You're not Jeremiah. You're not going to become, you're not going to go speak to Babylonian kings. But you understand, that's that's where we are taking the Word of God and we're just looking at it as something that's there for our devotional help. It's the very thing that is powerful that pulls down strongholds. Think about what the Word of God does throughout Scripture. It's the Word of God that raises the dead. When Jesus goes to the the tomb of Lazarus, He says, Lazarus, come forth. Where's the power? In Christ's words. Lazarus did not give God, Jesus Christ, permission to call him to come out of the tomb. He didn't ask permission. He said, Lazarus, come forth. He raised the dead. It's Jesus' words that make the deaf to hear. His words made the blind to see. His words make the dumb to speak. His words make the lame walk. The Word and Jesus Christ is so powerful that even Satan's kingdom is already defeated. It's already in ruins. He goes on and he says, not only is it quick and powerful, but it is sharper. Notice this. I love the way that the wording here, and again, you might have a different translation that's using a different word or a phrase. But it says, and sharper than any two-edged sword. A two-edged sword cuts both ways. It cuts both ways, and it's also, defer- it's also referred to as being sharper. Ephesians 6.17 refers to it, the sword being the sword of the Spirit. Now here is, I I saw this verse this morning about this two-edged sword, and I I honestly, I never made the connection, and maybe I should have. But look at Revelation 1, verse number 16, and see if you see a reference to Christ and a reference to a two-edged sword. Revelation 1, and look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me. Now this is the Lord Jesus' words. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. 
And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. I want you to see that first. I want you to go back now, knowing, knowing that this is Jesus that's speaking. And look at verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Where is that two-edged sword being described as coming forth from? Out of his mouth. The words. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword, which means it will enter where no other sword can go. It's intentionally given in order to make a more precise cut. What connects that in Hebrews 4 is it says, not only is it sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the divine asunder of soul and spirit. The divine asunder of soul and spirit is an interesting phrase. It describes the soul. It describes the spirit. It realizes and teaches us that there is nothing that is kept from this two-edged sword. There is no part of you that escapes what the Word of God reveals. There are examples throughout Scripture where people have tried to hide from God. They've tried to hide the intent, the secrets of their heart. They try to keep things from Christ. Even all the way back in the very beginning, Adam tried to hide himself. And when the Lord came out and said, Adam, where art thou? It wasn't because he didn't know where Adam was. He knew exactly where Adam was. That sword begins to cut to the very soul of who we are. It cuts to the very spirit of what we are. It cuts to the very things that separate us from God. It cuts to where our ignorance is. It cuts to our rebellion. It cuts to our carnal mind. It divides between the joints and the marrow. The most secret, intimate parts of who you are. It's the things that nobody else knows but you. Or so you think. Far as I know, there are a lot of things when I was a child I got away with. There are things to this day my mother does not know I did. She still doesn't know. There were things my father, before he passed away, did not know. But God always knew them. And there's always been a reminder of my conscience and my conviction of the things that I did. And there's things that need to be made right because the, the Spirit knows everything that I am. Christ knows everything that I think. He knows every one of my motives. Now remember, what's the context what we're talking about here? Belief or unbelief? The motive of your belief, is it based upon what Christ has promised, what God has promised, or is it based upon what you think it should be? The sword very divides those things. The sword cuts the lust of the flesh as well as the lust of the mind. It knows the deepest, darkest sins, and it reveals them. Do you know why people who, quote-unquote, fall into sin run as far away from God as they can? Because of the conviction? Because of the conscience? 
You know why they won't touch a Bible anymore? Because they know if they pick that Bible up and they start to read and they start to look, they're going to be cut to the heart. It's what happens. And again, people don't just wake up one day and wander off. They wander off because it starts very slowly. I don't believe that the people that came through the Red Sea, when they, the Israelites got to the other side, I don't think they had a group meeting and decided, hey, now the next thing God asks us to do, we're not going to do it. I think at that moment, they were all ready to follow Moses. They were all ready to follow God because they had seen this great moment where God had performed a great miracle. They were ready to go. But as they wandered and they wandered and they began to spend a little bit more time, they began to question, why do we always have to have manna? Why do we have to have so much manna? Is this all God can do? We're sick of this manna. We're sick of it. Before you know it, they're, they're in unbelief. The very Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Think about what this means. The most remote thought and the most remote plan that you actually have, the Word of God knows. Now there's really something to that. There's something about planning, but then there's also the intent and motive of the plan. What is it really all about? It'll discover what the purpose of our thoughts are, what the purpose of our, pl- our prayer are, and it will reveal to us what we're absolutely most attracted to and what the sinful means we hope to accomplish with them are. One man's described it this way, that the Word will turn the inside of a sinner out and let him see all that is in his heart. It'll turn you inside out. It'll show you what's on the inside of what your heart is really trusting in and what your heart is really focused on, what your real motive and purpose in life really is all about. And then he finished, we'll finish with this thir- verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You know, even the unbeliever is laid open. Christ knows the intent of the unbeliever. He knows the motive. He knows the heart. But notice that this is a declaration of omniscience. Something that cannot be seen. There is no creature that is not revealed in His sight. There is nobody who God does not know. Revelation 2.23, with reference Christ speaking of Himself, all the churches shall know that I am He that searches the reins and the hearts. There are no creatures that are hidden or concealed from Christ. You know why? Because Christ was just as much creator. In the beginning, God included God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. There is none that are not opened unto Him. The word manifest has this idea of being opened, revealed. He, by our, His omniscience, is able to take the very sacrifice that we bring to Him and to look and inspect it and to be sure that it's actually pure. This picture is from the Old Testament. Sacrifice is what this really means. And this is key to understanding this. The reason that the word creature is being used, there is a reference to humanity, but the reason the creature is being used, remember Hebrews is a lot of pictures and um, interpreting what the Old Testament meant. 
The creature is a reference to the, the animal sacrifices. And the one thing that would have to be done with that sacrifice, when those animals were being brought, do you realize that what the priests had to do was actually had to visually inspect and examine that sacrifice to be sure it was without spot and without blemish? He would absolutely cut it to see if it was acceptable. Now think about that for a minute. The sacrifices of all the blood that was shed on the mercy seat and all the blood that was shed, there was not an animal that was not given up there that was inspected to see if it was acceptable to God. Really, folks, this comes down to the reality that this cutting that the priest would do, they would dissect it. And I don't mean to be morbid this morning, but they would dissect it and then they would lay it open Now think about this in the context of what Christ is saying about what he knows about us. Think about the example of the sacrificial animal that was laid upon the altar. The priest cutting that animal open so that he could see all of his insides. He said, that's what Christ is doing with you. Folks, you and I are laid wide open. You can fool me. You can fool your husband. You can fool your wife. You can fool your parents. But you will never, ever fool Christ as to who and what you really are. You'll never get something by Him because you are laid wide open. He is the one that upon that dissection, He will try our sacrifices. He's the one who is called the judge. He is the one that will try our eternal state and say, are they mine? Every human being is going to have a meeting with Christ Himself. Either at the Bema seat or at the great white throne, one or the other, every person is going to have a meeting with Christ. And they are all manifest. They are all laid open like that Old Testament sacrifice. And all of the excuses a person is going to try to make before Christ None of them are going to hold. He already knows. He already knows what that day of reckoning is going to be like when we do have to give an account. Christ Himself, that's why He made comments like this, He knows the very number of hairs that are on your head. Now, if you don't think that's amazing, you're not thinking. That alone is astounding. But it means so much more than how many actual hairs are on you. That means there's nothing he doesn't know about you. So you could be seated here today and you could say, I am fully on board of this belief. I'm fully on board that Christ is the only way. And yet he knows if that's not truly the case. That there's something in you that's still trusting in something else that you're going to count on to enter into Christ's rest. I believe there were people of the Israelites who didn't go in who thought the only the reason that they were going to go in is just because they were Israelites. They truly believed God's not going to make our carcasses fall in the wilderness because we're Israelites. And there are people today that think God's not truly going to make my carcass fall in the wilderness because I'm a church-going person. I'm a good person. 
I've done everything you've asked me to do. I give to charity. I do all those good works we talked about this morning, but I do it as an unregenerate person who's not doing it through faith. And God says that's sin and I don't accept it. But yet you're trusting your eternal soul to that. Folks, there are people who are spending more time on the things of this world than spending time on really diligently seeking and understanding, am I truly going to enter into the Christ rest? And I'm telling you, you're making a critical, eternal, everlasting mistake to spend all of your time worried about this world. I can tell you where this world is going. It's going to get darker and it's going to get worse. And there's coming a day when they're going to come and they're going to shut this church down. You all understand what I'm saying? It will be, it'll be illegal to meet as a church. Maybe not in our lifetime, but it's coming. Yeah, even in this state, it's coming. And I've said it for a long time. We're not going to really know a lot about who the real believers are until we start actually getting some real persecution in this country because we're not seeing it yet. We're not seeing it. I don't know why and I don't know how it's going to happen. But I do know that Christ is sovereign behind all. And if he decides that a church, go read Revelation about putting, taking out the, putting away the candlesticks, taking churches out that are not standing for the truth. Just because something says it's a church doesn't make it a church. Christ has an exact account of you. He's the only one that knows everything about you. This is the omniscience of Christ. This is what we'll answer to. This is what unbelief will put us outside of the rest of Christ. Folks, there's nothing else more important that you're going to deal with today than your eternal soul. Nothing. And by the command of the word of God, repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ today, right now, not tomorrow, not next week, now. I read this early this morning. I don't know the whole context of it, but a, a person quoted a sermon that Spurgeon preached. I don't remember the name of the sermon, but I was taken by the reality that in that sermon, he said the word now 173 times. Why? Because he wanted them to understand that's how serious the matter is. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of repentance. Not tomorrow. Now. You run to Christ as fast as you can. And you throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ and you beg him to forgive you of your sins. Not this foolishness of asking Jesus to come into your heart. A dead man cannot ask a person to ask Jesus to come into his heart. You beg him to save you. Beg him to de demonstrate mercy. Romans 9 says he'll have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Don't just assume that on your deathbed he's going to show you mercy. Now is the day of salvation. This very moment. Oh, it breaks my heart to think of how many churches don't preach the gospel anymore. They just assume everybody seated there is all good. We've already, we've already punched our eternal heaven ticket. With what you're basing, everything that you are now, is that 
biblical Christianity. What you're in possession of now, is that what you're trusting in? Because if it's not in Christ alone, you're going to fall short. You will not enter into that rest. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Jesus Christ is rest. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ today. We're going to conclude by singing the hymn on 408 and then we'll finish in prayer. My faith looks up to thee. I think a very important thing to remember today is where our faith, who we look up to, 408, my faith looks up to thee.